everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Going good, man. Going good. Yeah. I am, uh, I'm sitting here looking out the window um, at another atmospheric river that is dropping rain onto <laughs> California again. Still... It's been a couple of weeks since we recorded, and it seems like it's been raining there like the whole damn time. Oh my god, dude! Or, we're like in March here. At least every time I talk to you, I know we're in March, mid March, and uh, 2023. For those who are listening to this, a thousand years in the future, and <laughs> it is a. I am. We're in the middle of winter still, and and I'm like I said before, I came back to California because it never rains here. Wow. And it uh, and it rains in Europe, so I brought it with me. <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, just because of climate change, it's going to just be a rainy place from now on. Oh my god! Can you imagine? I don't know. I mean, obviously, I can't predict the future, but that is what's happening. You know, environments are changing all over the world. Rainforests are drying out. Places that were traditionally dry are getting wetter. You know, it's happening. So it it might be the case. I don't know, dude. It could be that all of a sudden California becomes a. Uh, a uh, rainforest, right? That all of a sudden, well, yeah, mean, Brazil let them chop it all down. It's going to be a rainforest here from now on. You've already got a rainforest in the very northern part of the state, so like it could just spread down all the way down the coast if the coast stays there much longer and California doesn't crack off into the ocean and sink. <laughs> a la San Andreas. Here, on the other hand, it is exquisitely beautiful here today. It is, we're going to have a high of 65. Right now it's 59 degrees. We're going to have a high of 65 and it is sunny and nice. And uh, we have been waiting for it, man. Like it is finally turning nice here in Denver. And we're like, I mean, again, I like the winter. I don't, I I think I've said this on like the last 10 episodes of the show because we've been recording during the winter, but I like the winter. I like it when it's cold. I like bundling up and layering, but getting to go back out. We went on our first hike the other day. We had to hike through snow the whole damn time. Wow. <laughs> here in Denver, it's nice. You know, it's 60 to 5 degrees up here. But when you get up to like seven, 8,000 feet in elevation, it's all icy snow. Like we both slipped on ice. Even though we had yak tracks on and everything, we were still slip, slipping and sliding. And what are, what are yak tracks? <laughs> what are those? Yak tracks are like things you put over your hiking shoes or hiking boots. And they've got little like spikes on the bottom. They're sometimes called crampons. Mm-hmm. They're meant for like wa- walking on ice. So to keep you from slipping. Oh. And you know, when you go hiking here, anytime that's not the summertime, you have to take them with you because you never know when you're going to get to a part of your hike that's even in like the late spring and early fall. You never know when you'll come to a part that's been iced over because of the elevation. You know, it, it, it might be 80 degrees here, but if you go up to elevation, it'll be below freezing. Wow. Just because of the elevation dif- difference. Snow will sometimes stay trapped in little isolated corners and in the shadows there like all year. Like it'll never go away. Wow. So you never know when you're going to come across it. So when you're going hiking at like at elevation, you have to take those with you. Dang. You know what? It's so cool because in in a way, if you think about it, like the earth is so rad because you can like almost visit another planet. 
like I spent so little time oh, yeah. in the snow. <laughs> I spent so little time in the snow that as you're describing that to me, I'm like, holy shit, man, that would be, it would be such an, uh, an adventure, like going to another planet, you know, that's rad. I'm stuck in the city, you know what I mean? And so like, for me, it is like, mm-hmm. please take me out of here. So I do kind of try to look at it that way. Like, look at, you know, it's my planet, but it's the p- part of the planet I don't get to see as much. Okay. So what's been going on with you, man, besides getting rained on? Dude, just getting rained on, man. <laughs> I don't know. You can't really go surfing in the rain. No, I haven't. I haven't even gone. I haven't surfed since I was in, um, since I was like in Biarritz, France and, and Spain, you know? And so. Oh man. I know. Bummer. I know. I've been so busy with, with everything that uh, I'm still in. Uh, up in Brentwood, Los Angeles, it's beautiful up here. But uh, but yeah, no real crazy adventures. I'm kind of like going, wow, man, I haven't done anything. Although I did, I don't know, did I tell you yet that I I did like a, a psychedelic journey? Did I tell you about that, yeah? No, no, I, I love hearing about this. Oh, bro, I went full on Dune. You know. <laughs> here's the here's the here's the reality, man. Is that I'm such a fanatic for sci-fi that reading Dune, you know, got me for the first time ever to do like total hero dosage of mushrooms when I was younger, and uh, and so you know, obviously everything I see through the paradigm, like we're talking about, you know, the snow. I'm thinking about other planets, but so, anyways, right. for the first time ever. I did a psychedelic journey like with a group and a shaman. And so it was actually like really intentional. And I did, um, I did. So, you know, I was about to say I haven't had many adventures, but this was definitely an adventure. So, yeah, no kidding. So it was actually, it was a mix of ayahuasca and mushrooms. And, um, oh boy. <laughs> so i was like so like dude when you do like in it like it's much different than doing it individually right or just with friends and you know it was very much everybody's like in a circle it's very like ritualistic and primal right it's very much like the way that humans probably evolved you know i mean every culture have you seen there's a great documentary i recommend it to everybody it's uh on netflix it's based on a book by Michael Pollan, and it's called How to Change Your Mind. And I have not seen that. Dude, it's got like four episodes, and it goes through the history of indigenous cultures using various psychedelics. Like the first one is really about – is about LSD and it's uh, it's cool because it goes through the history of when it was discovered and then how it expanded consciousness in people, you know, especially like with, with uh, you, you know, they, all of these, they kind of used um, originally as in Western society and our society, they used them as um, like um, psychotherapy tools. And so right, right. that's what, you know, Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary. That's sort of coming back around again. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. You know, now they're using it for PTSD. Like at John Hopkins University, they're doing studies and they're like, even just one psychedelic journey, you know, and, and they use them a lot to prepare people for for passing on, for dying. But they're like, even just one journey changes you forever. In, in a very good way. Like you just see that everything is connected. And it, and what was rad is I, ha- that's definitely been my experience as well with 
hallucinogens with mushrooms, especially. Yeah. Mm. But it's, 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 well, I mean, not like the, not the masks, but like that feeling of like connectedness. Yeah. Connectivity. That. Right. And, and, and it's yeah. interesting that, you know, every culture had it, the, the, the episode that they did in that documentary on mushrooms, they talked about it. So they interviewed like shaman there that are part of this tradition. And, and when the Spanish first came and they conquered you know, in throughout like Central America and Northern Mexico and all that, right. they got there and they were like, they, the Catholic church got there and with the Spanish and they were like, okay, what's going on here with these rituals? And they found out that, wait a minute, man, <laughs> these people are giving their blessing, like these mushrooms, they're growing these mushrooms and they call them flesh of the gods. And the Catholic church was like, Absolutely not. No, absolutely, absolutely not. No way. Oh, yeah. They're like, that sounds like the Eucharist, you know, like when people take communion, they're like, absolutely not. We're going to persecute and we're going to make, we're going to outlaw this. We're going to make people paranoid about it so they don't do it. We're going to tell them it's from the devil, blah, 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 you know, and it's the, and what are they doing? It's all about, you know, ultimately religion is politics. That's all. That's what Dune teaches us, right? right? Of course. It's all politics. How do you control masses of people, you know? And it's like you, one of the ways is you make sure that the only way they can connect to the divine or to, to the universe is through them. Right. We control the only way, right. For you to get that feeling. And so, yeah, it was really, it was, so anyways, that's been, I was, like I said, I was going to say, I haven't had any adventures. Yeah, I have. And it was really cool. I won't be going on any of those kinds of adventures anytime in the near future. I, my, my big change right now is that it looks like I got a job for the first time in three years. I'm going back to having a regular job. Wow. What are you doing? Well, I quit drinking and I quit smoking weed just like completely naturally. I just felt like it. I just felt like quitting. Mm-hmm. And so I was just sitting around and I'm, I finished the book I was working on. And I like blazed through half of this other book. And I'm like, man, I'm going to get done with this book. And I was like, I'm just like, I need something to do. Mm-hmm. And the magazine isn't making the money that, you know, it's just enough to make my, pay my rent. And then like, that's it. I'm not saving any money. So I was like, I got to get a job. So I, believe it or not, applied to be a mail carrier. So I'll be like working for the USPS as a mail carrier starting in like Holy moly, dude, you're pulling a Bukowski. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> for years worked for the postal service. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to keep doing the writing thing and keep the magazine's going to keep going and everything too. But I just need something to occupy my days and it pays really well and it's got great benefits and Crazy everything benefits. And, and vacation time and everything. So, yeah, starting in a couple of weeks, I got the call like Friday of last week. They told me I start on the 25th, which is a Saturday, but apparently it's going to be like really crazy hours at first, like tons and tons of uh-huh. hours for the first little while because they're so understaffed. But I really don't mind. Most of the day, if I'm not writing the book I'm writing, then I'm not doing anything. That's great. Congratulations. That's going to be an adventure, man. And then I can kind of get myself out of the small amount of debt I have and then build a savings up and everything. But uh, that's what's going on over here at this end. But yeah, so no uh, ayahuasca trips for me, <laughs> at least at least for a while. <laughs> no, you're going on a different kind of adventure. That's awesome, man. And yeah, hey, totally, totally. You could write the next, because he wrote a book about the Postal Service. I don't remember what it was. Yep, but, yep. But yeah, I'm such a Bukowski fan. That's awesome, man. I'm stoked for you. It's going to be awesome. At least be different, something different, you know. Other than that, I think that's a plenty long intro now. (laughs) We don't have our normal segue this time, but we're going to go ahead and segue into the episode anyway. Guys, our latest couple of episodes were our top 10 
lists of science fiction antagonists like the bad guys, the villains from science fiction. And it got we got really good feedback from it, like surprisingly good feedback from that. So we decided to follow it up with the natural follow-up, and we're going to do the top 10 heroes or protagonists of science fiction now. Yeah. Yeah, once again, neither of us have consulted the other about what's on our list. So we might have redundancy here. I'm not totally sure if that's going to happen. That's, I think, what the surprise is, because the surprise, like, you know, like we talked about last time, I'm like, okay, can I pick unexpected but really cool choices that you know that you're not going to pick it's such a game i tried to do the same thing again as well for the most part at least mm-hmm. uh, for the most part but then i had to also be true to myself and be like okay so no. even though they're obvious picks i've got to put them on the list so this will be pretty fun last time you went first with your number 10 mm-hmm. so this time i'll go first with my number 10 okay so that way you'll read your number one last this time yes this is going to be part one of a two-part episode just like last time i said right this episode we're going to do our 10 through 6. first like last time i'll name my honorable mentions heroes or protagonists that definitely belong on a normal person's list that didn't make it on my list i wrote down superheroes as a character and that includes every <laughs> fictional comic book superhero because obviously a great deal of those superheroes are science fiction characters spider-man superman iron man etc 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 and i excluded superheroes as a group because i could easily make a top 10 list of just superheroes yeah agreed i didn't go in either i didn't include any comic book superheroes on my list even though I completely understand that there's a ton of them that are science fiction characters and totally belong on this. Other characters, Godzilla, even though Godzilla made my top 10 villains list, Godzilla often appears as a hero as well and has saved mankind tons of times. So Godzilla could easily belong on a hero's list. So could Mothra, Yoda, Obi-Wan, Han Solo, and Luke Skywalker from Star Wars all belong on lists. Picard, Kirk, Spock, Data from Star Trek all belong on lists. Classic heroes like John Carter and Flash Gordon belong on lists. I also wrote down Neo from The Matrix, Rick Deckard from Blade Runner, All E from Wall-E. So those are a bunch of characters that I think if you were making your own top 10 list and those characters were on your list, any of those characters, they completely belong there. You know, so this is not, I just want to point out that this is not a slight against any of the characters I just mentioned by not including them on my list. As Nick and I have mentioned, we are trying our best to try to pick mostly sleeper characters or dark horse characters a little bit, you know, to try to give the list some surprises. Okay, that being said, I'll start with my number 10. And I, even though I mentioned Picard, Kirk, and Spock, and Data as on my honorable mentions list, a Star Trek character did make my top 10 list at number 10. And that character is Captain Benjamin Sisko from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Oh, wow. Sisko was originally Commander Sisko on the series, and the reason he made my list instead of any of the other really great Star Trek characters is because I think of him as being the most heroic of the Star Trek characters, whose main virtue is heroism. If you haven't seen Deep Space Nine, real quick, it takes place aboard a space station called Deep Space Nine, which is a Cardassian-built space station and that it's currently under the joint control of Bajor, the planet that it orbits, and the United Federation of Planets. And Bajor was occupied by Cardassia. The Cardassians occupied that planet the way that Nazis occupied different countries in Europe during World War II. 
And that's a parallel throughout the series for 50 years. And they've just been basically booted off of Bajor. And there's kind of like a power vacuum going on on Bajor. And what's going on on the space station is, is that the Federation has stepped in to make sure that Cardassia doesn't try to refill that power vacuum and help Bajor get back on their feet. And while this is happening, they've also discovered the very first ever stable wormhole, which is also just outside of Bajor's atmosphere. And the stable wormhole leads to the Delta Quadrant, which is a part of space that the Federation has yet to explore. So that's kind of like the setup for the series. The series revolves mainly, I mean, it has a bunch of really great characters, but it revolves mainly around Ben Sisko, whose wife was killed in a battle against the Borg when Jean-Luc Picard was Locutus and led the Borg in a battle against the Federation and destroyed a ton of ships at Wolf 359. Cisco has all this baggage hanging over his head. Now he's a single dad. His wife was killed and he's raising a son, which is another thing that I think of him as having this really heroic quality is because despite all of this stuff happening to him, being put in this really tenuous situation and stressful situation and having all of this anger against Picard and against the Federation and against all this stuff, he is like the best dad ever. He behaves like such a present father throughout the series, and he treats his son so very well. So this other plot point is that besides all of this other responsibility that's going on with him, early in the series, he travels through the wormhole, and the wormhole is supposedly occupied by these godlike beings that the Bajorans call the prophets, and they worship them. And the prophets take Sisko out of our reality and into their reality, and they name him as their emissary. So besides being in charge of this ultra-crucial space station that borders unknown space and is like in the hotbed of this political tension, he's also named this prophet to a religion he doesn't believe in at all. Throughout the course of the series, you kind of learn why that is and what's going on with the prophets and how Cisco has been named this character and what it has to do with his upbringing and all of this other stuff. But... During that time, he leads the Federation through their largest and costliest war of their entire history. And during the whole time, he just acts like such a badass. So that'll be it. That'll be my, that's my number 10. That's my explanation for why Ben Sisko ended up on my list. And if you haven't watched Deep Space Nine in its entirety, do so. A lot of people consider it to be the best Star Trek series. I consider it to be the best, second best Star Trek ser series after Next Generation, of course. But for those of you who have watched Next Gen and have not watched Deep Space Nine, definitely do so. It is really great and really worth the time. And there's a really great subplot about a science fiction magazine set in the 50s and 60s. And it really hits close to home for me, a science fiction magazine publisher. It's crazy because I have not gotten into Deep Space Nine. And your description right there is so cool, man. It sounds so intense. It takes a while for all of these plot points to take off. Mm. Like at first, it's just like the goings-on of a space station, you know, and mostly it's just small politics, the small politics of people living together. Unlike most of the other Star Trek series where the crew is together on a journey, you know what I mean? And they're, very, they're running into other people, but the people aboard the ship pretty much remain static. Deep Space Nine is constantly in flux because people are coming and people are going. It's like a trade station. It's a way station. And like I said, all of those plot points really eventually culminate in the later seasons of the show. 
And the last season of Deep Space Nine is a really, really good season of television. Oh, so That's so rad. That's so rad. I'm going to do it. I'm going to jump in. That was a good... I didn't realize that all that came together. I didn't... I haven't watched the series enough to, to really... It all eventually does come together, and it's pretty satisfying, too, in my opinion. Oh, that's cool, man. All right. Well, I'm going to, on my number 10... Uh, I'm going to go with something that is so contemporaneous. I'm going to go with everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, and great the choice. main character is Evelyn Kwan Wang. Um, I wanted to lead with this because, man. dude, it's such a good movie, man. It's, uh, it's a great movie. Yeah. And, and, dude, it just killed it. Today's Tuesday, Tuesday the 14th of March. This movie just absolutely blew everything else away at the Oscars two days ago won Best Picture, Best Director, all of its actors won acting awards, Best Screenplay. This is really a extremely topical pick. Great choice. Yeah, it's such a good one. And it's so cool because it's about the, the multiverse. I mean, the character, She. what I love about it, it's kind of like we talked about the last one, last episode, where we talked about the importance of writing and how critical it is for a character to have a, a flaw, you know what I mean? And so the main character she's dealing with, um, Evelyn, she's dealing with, she, she, she immigrated to America, pursuing the American dream. They own a laundromat and their family is just in deep, deep crisis. Her husband is trying to serve her with divorce papers, though he loves her. He's just like, this is not working. Something's not working. Something has to change. And so it, she gets like all of a sudden pulled into the multiverse and it's one of, right. oh my gosh, it's so freaking cool. And so anyways, what I loved about the movie was its heart. I loved mm. it. I was about to say that. I yeah. loved the tone. Uh, the writing was unbelievable. Um, it, she was, it, dude, this mo- this script was actually written for Jackie Chan. So it's like a full on martial arts movie coupled with, you know, it's right. like one of my favorite movies ever, The Matrix. And I will say that like you, I did not choose, you know, one of my favorite heroes of all, which is Neo and in The Matrix. Of course. But, you know, just because it's a, it's a given, that's like one of the greatest sci-fi heroes ever. Right. And so, absolutely. but anyway, so she is, she has to master, you know, not only, you know, she has to deal with and confront like the fact that she's not emotionally available, you know, for her daughter mm-hmm. and for her husband, but she has to then master her mind and use martial arts. She learns martial arts. Okay. So one of my, fa- one of my <laughs> favorite aspects of any kind of a hero's journey is always the level up, okay? I, there are two things that I love about Hero's Journeys. I love, first, the level up, which is why I loved um, Empire Strikes Back, because for me, that was like my favorite Star Wars, oh, yeah. because that one right there is all about Luke leveling up, right? And going through this martial arts training, samurai training, to learn how to master himself, right? And master his mind, master his body, use the force, and this one in the matrix, what was so cool is the level up was so fucking unique in the sense that remember, they just plugged the data port right in. And he's like, Oh my right. God, I know Ju- 
they don't need they don't need a montage no, in uh, the no, Matrix. No, no, no. And it's like, okay, I, 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 are you telling me I know jujitsu? You know, and it's so cool in the sense that it was so creative. And, and this one is much the same way. And she has right. like this character. It's actually your husband from another dimension is like her mentor. And he's like right. giving her, he's, he's preparing her and helping her level up. And she levels up with martial arts the same way because, or in a similar way, uh, through the multiverse, um, in the sense that she did not know martial arts. And then she learns that and she learns these different skills that eventually enable her to like confront the antagonist, you know, and confront ultimately the shadow, which is herself. And so it, to, right. to me, it was just a perfect movie. It was so cool, so fun. I couldn't agree with you more. One of my favorite parts of her hero's journey is having to just embrace silliness, having to embrace absurdity yeah. as part of her development, you know, and let go of the seriousness, the over seriousness that's killing her and her family. Yeah. I think that's like a really beautiful story to tell. And it's something you don't see a lot of in film, especially in martial arts films. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yet samurai practice is all about like Miyamoto Musashi. I just started this new account where I'm really putting out a lot of philosophy on from, from samurai. Plug your account. Because it's called the inner blade. Okay. And you can find that on Instagram. But the, the reality is, is that, you know, I love jujitsu probably because of the matrix, you know, but the, the reality is, is that uh, samurai developed jujitsu um, for when they lost their swords. And so, you know, the, the Japanese government abolished the samurai in the late 1800s and, but the sam the samurais lived on and they became jujitsu players. Right. And then it spread from Japan to Brazil and now it's international. Anyways, one of the part of the sam what Miyamoto Musashi, who's like the greatest samurai ever, he was like, man, you cannot take yourself too seriously, right? You can't, you have to learn to just be like, you know, it's okay. Life is fun. It should be fun. Right. You should be able to just not, you know, so yeah, very cool. I'm glad you brought that up because that was ultimately her big lesson, wasn't it? That was her demon. Yep. Yep. And you know, that's true of so many people taking things too seriously is a big problem in our society. Yeah. People have embraced their inner child a little bit more than they, yes. they do. You know what I mean? And I think we have a problem with psychology in our modern society. Here's the thing is that we have a problem where people are childish in that, you know, they spend their time obsessed over childish things. And this is not like a, I hate to use blanket statements, but they also at the same time, don't allow themselves to have like a childish heart. You know what I mean? To, yeah. to like actually do those, like experience silly joy, you know, let that be a part of their life. So I think that's an excellent pick. It's a really an excellent pick. This list is already going to be great. I can tell already. Uh, <laughs> All right. What do you got next? Okay. My, my number nine pick is Dr. Eleanor Ann Ellie Arroway who is the protagonist in Carl Sagan's 1985 novel, Contact. I'll go through that, that real quick if you haven't read Contact. I, I knew you were going to pick this one. Oh, yeah. I knew it. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I want to pick this one, but I know. And I'm like, my only question is, where does it appear on this? <laughs> I love, That's I, it. I, I knew well, it. I love that we know each other well enough now so that we could. Uh, basically, uh, <laughs> the gist of Contact is, is that human race receives a coded signal from a nearby star and there's this big race among humanity to decode the signal and find out what it is and what's going on. The novel centers around Ellie Arroway, 
who was, a, as a child, was a gifted math and science student, and then grew up to be an astronomer who ends up being one of the leaders in SETI, which stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. That's still a part of astronomy now, although it's still now and was when this novel was written, sort of a small niche corner of that field. You know, most of astronomy is not dedicated to the search for extraterrestrial existence. It's mostly just studying the physical properties of the universe. But there is still a small corner that is out looking for signals, looking for glimpses of things that could indicate alien intelligence. Okay, so because she goes into this field, she ends up being the one who discovers the signal, or at least the project she's working on is the project that discovers the signal. And then what happens for Ellie is years and years pass as the world at large kind of grapples with how to handle this information. The different governments of the world compete. There's international tension based on this information. It was written in 1985, so the Cold War was still going on. So the context of the Cold War still exists. And because she ends up being sort of one of the leaders on the project to decode the information, she's also, because it's, she's in America, the president of the United States basically has her work with religious leaders. So she being, I don't want to say anti-religious, she's just non-religious. She's an agnostic. She has to grapple with herself about the nature of spirituality using her own scientific mind to try to understand how spiritual people view the same information she's getting and how their point of view should be listened to or not listened to depending on, you know, what they're saying. Eventually, they decode the message and they learn that it's schematics for a machine and the machine has, it puts five people aboard and then there's this big international race to select the five people that will end up on the machine. And they don't exactly know what the machine does, but, you know, the speculation is that it's some sort of vehicle. Anyway, I don't want to tell you exactly how the novel ends, but the story is about Ellie doing everything in her power to be one of the people aboard that ship because her whole dream is to explore other parts of the universe and, you know, in a way, other parts of existence, other parts of reality, and put into context the events of her own life. So if you haven't read Carl Sagan's Contact, I think that's a really another one that you should put on your list. I say Carl Sagan's Contact, by the way, just to I interviewed Sasha Sagan, Carl's daughter for the magazine, and she explained to me that the novel, even though it's credited to Carl Sagan, is should be equally credited to Carl's partner and her mother, Andrian, who was one of the writers of the screenplay. They made a film of this as well. If you just want to watch the film, it does an okay job of condensing the plot, although the book is better, of course. So the novel is by Carl Sagan and Andrian. I mean, do you do you feel do you feel like because I haven't read the book? Do you feel like, and I, I probably should, um, because I love the movie. Man, it's right. so, Matthew McConaughey's so good. Jodie Foster. I mean, it's just a perfect freaking movie. Yeah. Do you feel like it was a companion? Do you feel like it was better than? Do you feel like how, how does it compare? It's definitely a companion. Mm -hmm. You know, I think pretty much all adaptations are companions. Like you say this all the time. Mm -hmm. But I think all adaptations are companion pieces. But some, but some stand on their own. And so I feel like this movie stands on its own, you know? The movie totally stands on its own. Yeah. But the book adds so much more to the story. There are some creative liberties taken in the movie that don't exist in the book. And I kind of prefer how some of those plot points are handled in the book to the movie. Uh, but okay. I don't think they like 
spoiled the plot in the movie at all. I think the movie's still really good. Mm-hmm. It speeds up everything a whole lot. The book is pretty long, so you know you get a lot more exposition mm-hmm. for the story. The reason I wanted to pick Ellie is because Ellie is so brave throughout everything. You know what I mean? She stands by her convictions as a scientist in the face of being put on the spot constantly by religious leaders. One of the great characters is Matthew McConaughey's character in the movie. He's a religious scholar, and he really challenges Ellie's point of view by giving his religious thought a lot of credence. He's like a really thoughtful, intelligent individual. The questions he asks her and the way he frames his point of view, it challenges Ellie's worldview a whole lot. And the way she sticks with her convictions, the way she ends up aboard this, I don't want to call it a vehicle, but this machine at the end of everything and is just more excited for the journey than she is worried about her own life is really, it's remarkable. And what I like about it most is is that it's not in any way, even though the events of the story are clearly science fiction or whatever, she doesn't possess any supernatural qualities herself. She's not extra smart. She's not like the smartest woman in the world. She's not the bravest woman in the world. She's not any of those things. You know, she's just a woman who has a scientific mind, who is curious and really embodies all of the great qualities that Carl Sagan describes in his ideas about science. Like Carl Sagan is a big hero of mine and Andrian as well. They're big heroes of mine and the way that they humanize science and they advocate for science by giving it its own type of spiritual quality is really important to me as, as an individual. And I think it really carries over in this character of Ellie. That's why she made my list. Awesome. Awesome. I knew you were going to pick it and it's a good one, man. <laughs> it's, it's, in fact, it's such a good movie that it's, it's one of the movies that I try and watch every year because it's so cool. It's so enjoyable. And I don't have many movies like that. That's one of the few that I'm like, yeah. All right. So for my next one, um, I am going to choose. And I'm not putting these in order. I cannot. It's Okay. It's, That's very in like order-ish. Yeah, mine are in order-ish. I wanted, to, like, I picked everything everywhere all at once because it's so contemporaneous. It's like, no, no, no. That's this week. So... I kind of wanted to, 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 to start with that. But my next one is one of my favorite sci-fi movies, and it is Moon. Um, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, great choice. That was directed by Duncan Jones, who is David Bowie's son. Um, and it stars Sam Rockwell as Sam Bell. And the gist of the story is that he is on the moon. We have a base on the moon where uh, basically they're mining um, a mineral to provide like unlimited energy for Earth. And but it's a difficult, you know, being away from Earth is very, very difficult. And Sam Rockwell's character is up there and he is, um, you know, going out. He's like it's a one man mission and it's he and What I love about the movie, I love movies that are like so small Mm. where it all is like there's just like a couple characters like Ex Machina was like that, right? Right. Where they're just trapped in this little area. It's really Aristotle's like uh, unities of, of drama where he, Aristotle thought that great drama, you know, should encompass like, you know, a small place, small amount of characters on a small amount of time. And if you can unify those three things, then the drama is ratcheted so high. 
And Moon is a perfect example of that because you have Sam Rockwell, (laughs) the only real actor, you know, the main, the the only actor you really see. And then you have like this AI version um, of, uh, of, of of a character that is disembodied, you know, that you only hear the voice of Kevin Spacey. And, um, and so it was 2009 movie, one of my favorite, um, it, I think it was, the budget was like 5 million. It wasn't a big hit. It was, it became, it has become more of like a, another cult movie, but definitely one of my top, you know, I would say like top five, maybe, you know, movies of all time, sci-fi movies of all time. And what happens is I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, that's what I was going to, I was going to ask you. (laughs) We don't go too much into spoilers, but basically all of a sudden he is hurt in his lunar rover and suffers, uh, you know, almost killed, but actually gets back to the moon base and encounters another person there. And it's him. Right. And so you have this freaking and they're trying to figure out who is who, who are you? Who am I? Why are we the same person? Why are we here? And his mission is coming to an end and he's going to go back to earth and be with his family who he misses terribly, misses his wife, but he's there doing this job, making money, but he's just about done and he's about to, to fly back. And as he's, you know, he's because of this injury, all of a sudden this other person is there and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And he starts getting sicker and sicker. And then the new clone is it's dude, it's so good. What do you, what do you think about? What did you think about it? Okay. First of all, I, when I first saw this movie, I was blown away. You know what I mean? I watched it when it came out, I went to the theater and watched it and I was blown away. And like you said, small is a great way to describe it. It's almost like watching a stage play. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's the kind of play you'd watch in like a small, like black box theater. And it really has a ton of, like the drama is amped way up, even though, and Sam Rockwell is one of the most underrated actors in all of history. (laughs) He's so good in every single thing he's in. And he absolutely carries this movie. But Sam Bell is a great hero because after, you know, you go through all of these plot developments, the actions he takes at the end of this movie are so cool and so like perfect to, like a perfect way to wrap up the story again i don't want to spoil the end of this movie for somebody who hasn't seen it but it's a, got a just a great little tight little script and it's the hero in it is like it's only one yeah. character really i mean the like you said it's, it's got the ai character Gert, that's gertie gertie and, and gertie play and gertie's not without it, it's an artificially intelligent character but not really human in any sort of like real way. So it really does, like you say, only have one character. So Sam Bell is really the only character of the movie. And it really just like that character's journey throughout the course of the movie, the character arc is insane. Insane. Yeah. It's really, really cool. So anyways, that was my, that was my number nine, I guess you would say, but it's, if you haven't seen, if someone hasn't seen the movie, it's like, man, Ex Machina, Moon, you got to see those two movies. Shortlist it for sure. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. Okay. My number eight. This is one of the uh, characters that I think is going to make a lot of people's list. You know, uh, this is the first one that's included on my list. That I think it's sort of like a, like a, an, oh yeah, of course, kind of kind of character. So I, for my number eight, I picked Max Rokitansky, mm. Mad Max. And uh, here, there's a couple of reasons I picked Mad Max. First of all, 
I'm a huge Mad Max fan. I love the franchise. I, all four movies are super badass. And they just have a really a special place in my heart. And so the character does as well. I almost picked Furiosa. I know. I was just like, oh, how did you choose between those two? Yeah, and it was a really tough decision. And I actually had Furiosa on the list. And eventually I decided for Max because Max appears in four movies and Furiosa only appears in one. Yeah. And that's really and that's really what was the deciding factor for me. Okay, so a quick breakdown of Max, if you're not a Mad Max fan, which who are you? And we have gone through Mad Max. A lot of these characters that we're naming, you can go back and watch or listen to our episodes on some of these characters. We haven't done a moon episode. But we have done a Mad Max episode. So if you go back and watch the Mad Max movies, if you haven't seen them lately, I'll just go through the basic plot of the franchise. So Max is a main force patrol officer in sort of dystopian Australia. And this is near the end, during the collapse of civilized society. And he's tasked with protecting the roads around Sydney, Australia, or I think it's Sydney, might be Melbourne, like as society crumbles. And it's sort of like an unofficial police force kind of situation. And uh, his partner and best friend is murdered, like really brutally murdered. And Max wants, he tries to quit the police force. And his boss basically convinces him to, instead of quitting the police force, just take a vacation, get away from it, clear his head. So Max takes his wife and child on vacation to try to, you know, get away from all of the things that are like, kind of wrecking his life. Like while, while Max is protecting the roads, he's sort of having like a mental breakdown a little bit before all this stuff with Goose happens because he, you know, it's a really brutal job. And Max is starting to think that he's kind of like just as bad as the people he's, you know, protecting society from, you know what I mean? Because he has to use force pretty much constantly to do his job. So he's starting to have like doubts about himself. So he goes away to clear his head and he's like with his beautiful young wife and his child, his little baby. And while he's there, the same gang that murdered his partner comes and finds his wife and child and murders them too. And Max like snaps. He like completely snaps. He steals the police vehicle back from the main force patrol and uses that vehicle to hunt down all of the members of this gang and murder them one by one. And he kind of loses his mind. So in the first movie, Max is very much more of an anti-hero than he is a hero, you know? And uh, that's sort of how the odyssey of Max's journey begins, is much more of an anti-hero than a hero. But as the franchise goes on, even though Max tries his best to maintain that sort of like self-important anti-hero sort of persona, his good nature wins out in the end in all of these different scenarios. Even though, you know, Max on the surface is doing the things he does for selfish reasons, viewers come to see that Max actually is inside a hero, even though he doesn't necessarily want to be a hero. Oh, yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, you know, Max wants to just like drive off into the wasteland and just do for Max, you know, like Max is priority number one. But every time he comes across somebody in trouble, he reverts to hero mode. And it's true in The Road Warrior, it's true in Thunderdome, and it's sure as hell true in Fury Road. 
and uh, Max's good nature and his like inner the heroism that wanted him to be a force patrol officer in the first place kind of wins out in the end. And there's this like lengthy four movie character arc for Max where despite the awfulness and the chaos of the dystopian society and the wasteland, he can't rid himself of that goodness inside of him. And that's why Max made my list in the end is because even though, you know, he talks a big game about, Oh, I'm just in it for the guzzling. I'm just in it for, you know, to get the tools I need to survive. The truth is not that the truth is, is that Max wants to see right in the world. And he wants to fix the broken world. And that's not more evident than it is when he's portrayed in Fury Road. Who He really, like that character in Fury Road, his, the portrayal of Max in Fury Road, he really comes full circle and has become like a full-on hero again. It's not just doing things for himself. He's just being a hero. Yeah, he's a good one. He represents, yeah, he kind of just represents the hope that humanity can crawl out of the chaos and like, you know, keep the light of humanity alive. Yeah. Fury road was such a cool turn because to make Furioso the, the real, you know, the main protagonist in that, in him kind of a background protagonist, that was a cool, cool play on his character. It was dope. And that's why I think, you know, Furiosa is getting the next film. You know what I mean? She's sort of carrying the mantle of that like human goodness into the future of the franchise. And for those of you that don't know, currently in development is Furiosa. Actually, I think it's filming, if I'm not mistaken. And that stars Anya Taylor-Joy from The Witch and The Menu and tons of other movies. And she'll be playing young Furiosa. It's actually a prequel to Fury Road. Ah, it's going to be so cool. And then, yeah, that's actually directed by George Miller himself. So yeah, that's obviously us fans are right on the edge of our seat for that one. Okay. Yes. All right. For my next, my next one, this is one of my favorite freaking movies. I didn't, it's based on a book. I was not that much of a fan of the book, but I love the movie and it is Starship Troopers. Oh yeah. And the hero, right? (laughs) And the hero of that movie is Johnny Rico. Johnny Rico. And, uh, yeah, I really wanted to take I really wanted to take this list and kind of try and highlight some things, some movies we haven't really gone into. And um, Starship Troopers, you know, is one of them. How have we not done Starship Troopers yet on this podcast? No, I know. In a Wait, have we really not done that? I think we've touched on it and we haven't really gone into it, you know? We really need to do a Starship Troopers episode for sure. Yeah, and it's based on the book by 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 Robert Heinlein, right? Right. And he he's like one of the greats, one of the titans of that golden era of sci-fi. And um and so while I wasn't that big of a fan of the the book, I never really got that much into it. I thought it was really cool. Um I do love Heinlein's work and one of my favorite books of all time. Maybe we should do a Heinlein episode. Maybe so. We can kind of touch on this also. But He's a sort of a controversial figure in science fiction. Yeah, Stranger in a Strange Land. Yeah, we've talked about that. Yes, one. very controversial. Not controversial the way some writers are. Not like H.P. Lovecraft controversial, but he definitely has... He, you know, he's seen as problematic to some people. Yeah, I think he is problematic. But I love... Stranger in a Strange Land was rad. That was a cool, weird freaking book i love that about this messiah figure who comes from to 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 the 
to Earth and us. Oh, that would have been a cool character to put on the list too, but I like your point. I know. Yeah, I like Johnny Rico though. Yeah, Johnny Rico's cool because he's so like, so like dense. Like the Starship Troopers is cool because it's kind of, it's making fun of, Na- really, it's making fun of nationalism and what the movie is about. Right. In yeah, the movie, not the book. Yes. That's why probably why I didn't get into the book. Just so the book, the book kind of takes the whole like nationalism and militarism kind of like at face value. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the movie is sort of a parody of that in a way. Yeah. So it's making fun of, you know, and understanding Starship Troopers came out like during the time of um, it was released in 97. We had just come out of kind of the Iraq war, which is all about nationalism. We were about to go into another Iraq war, which was all about nationalism. I mean, you know, nationalism is really a religion. Absolutely. And it's where the dumbest people in society are like stirred up, you know, to go kill other people. And that's the gist of this book is, but what's great about it is because the invaders are like um, these arachnids, right? right? So the earth is being like threatened, somewhat being threatened, not really, being threatened by these bugs, these arachnids out on another, in another galaxy. So they like rival. The reality is what we learn is that we've kind of attacked them first and they sent like bombs that destroy part of Brazil, which is where our character Johnny Rico is from. But so we then marshal our, our forces and we go invade and we try and take on um, these arachnids, these bugs. And it really, it's kind of very much like the Iraq war, right? right? We're going to go over there. We're going to fight this war or Vietnam, same shit again and again and again. We're going to go over there. Come on, rah, rah, rah. We're going to kick ass. And they go over there and get the living shit kicked out of them. <laughs> and so it's really, uh, it's cool because Johnny Rico is like one of those like gung-ho, like militaristic, I'm joining the Marines. Yeah. And I'm not even going to, I don't even want to be a pilot, you know, like obviously like in the, in the American military, we have, you know, the army, the Navy, the air force and the air force are tend to be easier jobs. They're smarter people, but he's like, I want to be a Marine. I had a friend like this who went as he was in engineering school and wanted to prove to himself that he was, I'm, I'm a tough Marine guy and ended up getting shipped over to the Iraq, the first Iraq war. And it did not end well for him. And so for me, it was like my best friend growing up. And so for me, I've always been like, oh, my God, who the who, who would fall for this shit? You know, <laughs> and so. Right. And so anyways, lots, that's of people start, do, man. lots of people do, man. They do. And he woke up to it afterwards. You know, I mean, if you look at the way I'm not anti-military, I guess, per se. But if you look at the way, you know, until we treat our military and, you know, look at all the homeless in, in Los Angeles. Most of these people are veterans. Yeah, not against the military, against the military industrial complex. Exactly. There's a difference. That's, There's that's a difference. the difference. And that's what this is about. And that's what this movie is about. And it's super, you know, fun and cool and smart and cerebral. And Johnny Rico is just this, the most, it's the densest character. Oh my God. But uh, it's cool, man. And if anybody hasn't seen it, I definitely recommend seeing it. Uh, 
it's one of my favorites. What was interesting about this movie is that, you know, I loved the, the first movie was one of my favorite, but like, you know, the matrix and a lot of other movies, when they made the sequels, it was just terrible. They just could not pull it together. Every sequel was like, ugh. Well, they had had different directors, you know. The original has one of the best directors ever. Yeah. And the sequels don't, you know, and also not the same budget either. Yeah. One of the points I wanted to make about the difference between, because I get asked about this a lot. Like, there's a lot of, we touch on libertarianism a lot, and occasionally I get some flack from libertarians. Mm. And I'm not attacking any libertarians today, guys. uh, (laughs) Lower your cockles. I'm not here to talk shit today. But one of the... Things is, you know, he's known for being a libertarian. That's one of the reasons that he's a controversial figure. I'm talking about Heinlein, yeah, for, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what he's trying to do with this book was to try to make people understand the idea of nationalism by expanding it to globalism. Basically saying that nationalism would make better sense to you if you thought of the earth as your country. If all of us were threatened by the same thing, suddenly nationalism would make sense to you. You know, everybody would join that fight and there wouldn't be any like, oh, no borders. Let's all be friends with the aliens. And what's great about the movie is, is that at the end of the movie, they're totally wrong about that. Once they communicate with the aliens, the bugs, at the end of the movie, they realize that the humans are the bad guys the whole time and that the bugs are just scared and trying to defend themselves. So... In a way, it really does take that idea, flip it. The movie flips Heinlein's concept of the defense of nationalism completely on its head and kind of spoils it, honestly. And that's what makes the movie so great. Besides also just being a hella entertaining. So fun. So (laughs) fun. I love the tone of it. I think for this first, uh, for this first, you know, group for me, I really focused on tone right. and I wanted to find obscure, but really, really fun movies for, you know, sci-fi. Sometimes it's like one of them that didn't make the list for me. I'll tell you later because it was just a little too dour, but I like movies like that too, yeah. you know, where they're very, very earnest. So I like that too. But for this one, I was really like, okay, let's just have fun with this. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 